guys, welcome back. Um, today we're going to be talking about um, a lot of things really. It's going to be a little more stream of consciousness than usual. Um, I recently started reading a collection of essays by John Berger, Sven Blomberg, Chris Fox, Michael Dibb, and Richard Hollis titled Ways of Seeing. Uh, it's a little uh, older than what I usually read. Um, it was written in the late 70s. But it has brought me um, a lot of insight into how I digest art, and it's helped me realize who I'm actually making my own art for. Um, and so I'd like to share some of the musings um, that I've had with you all. Um, I've completed the first three essays at this point, um, but this is specifically a response to the first essay. Um, so without further ado, uh, let's get into it. So after reading that first essay, In Ways of Seeing, it got me wondering, who owns art? And why do people think of museums as like a church or a library? Um, viewing old paintings has become this sort of religious experience as well as a nostalgic one. Um, but I rarely hear art historians or people talking about art in such a way that is like, oh, I just really like the colors of this one, or I feel happy when I look at the Mona Lisa. No, people flock to the Mona Lisa at the Louvre to be in the presence of da Vinci's masterpiece, um, much like medieval pilgrims flocking to cathedrals to get a glimpse of like religious relics of some saint. Um, and thinking of this, I'm struck um, by this memory I have of visiting Saint-Chapelle in 2017 with my best friend, uh, Martha, in Paris. And um, in Saint-Chapelle, there's this um, supposedly uh, a relic of Jesus's crown of thorns. Um, and to be honest, you couldn't even see it when you're there. Um, where it's kept, it's deep within the sacristy of the chapel. So it's barely visible, even when you get as close as the chapel will allow you. Um, and the chapel itself is super tiny. Um, it's wall-to-wall, -wall, beautiful, stunning stained glass, which you have to climb the world's tiniest and steepest staircase just to see. Um, but the stained glass is stunning. And I remember being overcome with this like intense emotion when I first saw how well it was preserved. And I remember Martha remarking to me, I think she just read it in the brochure that a lot of the stained glass was replaced or restored. And of course it had been. The chapel is from the 13th century. It's the oldest chapel in Paris. And why would the oldest chapel in Paris have the original stained glass? Of course it wouldn't. But that overwhelming awe that I felt had sort of dwindled. And why? This was an incredible display of glasswork. The restoration team must have been incredibly skilled and talented to have been tasked with restoring the windows of Saint-Chapelle. So why did it no longer seem so special to me? I think that first rush of emotion was the same excitement I feel seeing, you know, the physical brush strokes of some renowned or ancient painting in a museum. Something about seeing the physical remnants of some wonderful artist long gone makes me feel like I'm there with them in the same moment that they moved their paintbrush to create this one specific brush stroke. In Saint-Chapelle, I felt for a moment a brief awe in which I thought I was in the presence of some 13th century stained glass artisan and I was standing in the same place he stood as he laboriously placed each piece in its respective position. None of that was made untrue by Martha's revelation. I was still standing in that place where the 13th century artisan stood. 
I just wasn't looking at his glass anymore. And why did that disappoint me so much? Why did this unknown, to me at least, artisan from years and years past, what made him any better than the incredibly talented person who was tasked with preserving his work? And the answer is a complicated one. Obviously, a lot of the awe I felt has to do with a topic I've discussed briefly on this podcast already, chronological resonance. I felt a kinship, an ancient energy in Saint-Chapelle. I felt a resonance of the artisans constructing the windows, of the individual who encased the crown of thorns in its ornate golden case, of the metal worker who built the giant gilt sacristy in which it lived. I still felt that resonance after learning of the contemporary artists who restored them. But what I lost was a sense of excitement, awe, mysticism at the spectacle of being in the presence of something so old something that had survived. The first essay in Ways of Seeing calls out this mysticism at the survival of old art as a means for obscuring or sometimes even destroying the piece's original meaning or intention. I was in awe of how beautiful this chapel looked, not initially because of its own meaning or merit, but because of its age and how good it looked for supposedly having survived so long. Coming to terms with this at first was humbling. I felt annoyed with myself for falling for some trick. How could I not have known that it was not the original glass? How could I not tell? But in reality, of course I wouldn't have been able to tell. I'm not an artisan of stained glass. I'm not a historian of uh, of art history. And restoring the glass was never meant to create an illusion or trick uh, to trick the unsuspecting visitors. I assume the chapel restored the glass because they were intending to recreate that experience of being a medieval pilgrim who has traveled far to breathe the same air as the crown of thorns which adorned Christ's head on the cross. And in that respect, they succeeded. That initial awe I felt, the same awe which warms my heart thinking about it, must have been what those French pilgrims felt when they first visited Saint-Chapelle in the late 13th century. How exciting to share that space with those souls. The aforementioned essay claims that this mystification process, the same which made me feel retroactively ashamed for not noticing the glass was unoriginal, is a process by which a, quote, privileged minority is trying to invent a history which can retrospectively justify the role of the ruling classes, end quote. The art of the past, even arguably the stained glass of Saint-Chapelle, was created by and for the ruling class. Thus, this ancient and deeply rooted ideology affirms that art is meant for privileged and educated people, and not meant to be enjoyed by the working classes. Now, I disagree a little bit with regards to older works such as in medieval times, specifically Saint-Chapelle, because while certainly the art was commissioned by the ruling class, it was encouraged that devoted Catholics travel, usually as a form of penance to churches and reliquaries such as Saint-Chapelle, in order to atone for sins and find salvation in the arms of the Lord. Medieval art was not meant to be consumed just by the ruling class. But on that same note, oftentimes pilgrims were on pilgrimage as a criminal punishment. And the aforementioned uh, encouragement to travel um, to these places was an encouragement from the Catholic Church, which was the ruling class of the time. So in a way, you can still see the firm hand of the ruling class even in these uh, lowliest of instances. 
But when we move into the centuries afterwards, especially the Renaissance, Berger's point is well supported. And much can be said for that Renaissance ideology still being foolishly perpetuated today through such means as mysticism, class hierarchy, gatekeeping, definitely in the U.S., where most museums charge entrance fees, which is enough to deter most working class and or less formally educated individuals from them. Now, I totally understand that um, museums are not given enough government support financially, which is why they charge entrance fees, but it still deters folks from entering them as opposed to, let's say, the British Museum, which is free. And thinking about all this got me wondering about the current debate in theater circles about the desire to film live theater in order to make it more accessible. A lot of the arguments against it seem to wax on about the quote-unquote tradition and the importance of separating live theater from film. And I've always found those arguments to be somewhat hollow. I believe there's a similar mysticism about theater with the capital T and the R-E that follows the mysticism of museums. Theater like that, such as the Greek classics and Shakespeare, has often been reserved for the more wealthy, for the ruling class of our time, reinforcing a similar hierarchy. What is so wrong about Zoom theater? What's so wrong about filming a live performance and giving people access to it online? What are we really trying to preserve there? Is it really the quote-unquote tradition Or is it merely a class hierarchy upon which a lot of our livelihoods depend? Now, luckily, I think the pandemic has taught a lot of the theater companies that live off these means that lesson the hard way. And I'm encouraged to see more of them embrace change out of necessity. I just hope that this change continues post-pandemic and helps us make theater more accessible to everyone instead of just reinforcing this passé, renaissance, ruling class ideology upon which the art world has been suffering for a long time. Well, that's all I have for you today, guys. Um, Thank you so much for listening to my little Uh, essay response to ways of saying I'm going to continue reading it it's really um, insightful Um, but if you like this let me know and I'll I'll post more responses about it Um, once again podcast episodes are out every Tuesday vlog episodes a little less frequently Um, you can follow me at podcast liminal on Twitter um, and we have a Facebook page as well facebook.com slash podcast liminal Um, you can follow both of those for updates on when episodes uh, come out what they're going to be so you never miss an episode if you're listening on Apple please um, subscribe and give it a five star rating if you want to support us Um, otherwise follow it on any podcast uh, listening app you're on uh, so you never miss an episode thank you so much As always, I love you and I will see you next week.